0: Our reading today comes from the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 37 through nine. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, uh, good morning, uh, everybody. I, um, uh, I, so just some quick uh, family news that I want to share, a couple of things. Um, so yesterday, uh, Lisa and I celebrated 17 years. Uh, really, really um, excited about that. The, the, and, and one of the things is we were really reflecting on is just sort of there's different eras of um, of our life together. There's the time that we spent in California, the time overseas, the time um, uh, in Memphis, and, and then here. And that this has just really been, you guys have loved us well. we have I can't um, thank God enough for the community into which um, the Lord has placed my family and I. And so I just want to say, say thank you uh, and continue to pray for us. Um, uh, that um, whatever story and whatever journey God continues to have uh, for us, that, uh, that we would live well together, that we would love well together, and thank you guys so much for, for the ways that you, that you love us and, and care for us. So, um, just, wanted to, just wanted to say that and um, try and get some husband points for acknowledging <laughs> a wife and a room full of people, um, because that's my wife's love language. It's not, really. <laughs> um, I, um, I, I, the other thing that I just wanna say is that, uh, th- th- is that I'm just genuinely excited to be here with you. Uh, I I love coming here. I love being a part of this community. I love uh, just a room full of folks. Now, some of this is uh, certainly uh, being an Enneagram 7, Uh, I love sort of collections of people and being a part of it. If you don't know what an Enneagram 7 is, you can jump into the Enneagram seminar that Justin Fung is leading and you can sort of understand all of that. The other side of this though, as an Enneagram 7, I'm also an introvert, which is really an interesting combination. So I'm really glad to be here. And then once service is over, I retreat and lock myself in a room all by myself so I can plan the next gathering uh, with uh, all of my friends and and family. Um, It's sort of the tortured uh, life of an Enneagram introverted 7. Uh, but, but, but more than anything else, like really just my excitement to be here is more than just sort of um, how do I get to see friends? How do I get to see folks that are encouraging me in my own journey of faith? How do I get a chance to encourage you in your journey of faith? But also to watch the excitement, the ways that you uh, care for one another in the midst of this journey together. Uh, but I also have to say that it, it, that the Lord has really been stirring this uh, peace in me. That it's more than just m- my excitement about you being here, or your excitement about some others being here. But that there is another uh, another one that is here with us, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit is here with us. That as we gather to turn our face and our gaze towards God, and for us to together remind one another of the goodness and greatness of God, His great love for us that was poured out on the cross in Christ his uh, invitation to us to say, listen, there is life for you. There is a, a real living for you that's made available. And so even as much as I love gathering here and as excited as I am just by the way that God has made me, that more than anything else, I want to be excited by the fact that the Holy Spirit is here. Now, let me also confess something else to you. There are days where my highest expectation for what happens today, and I'm embarrassed to share this with you, but my highest expectation for what happens today is that like, I don't make a mess of the word of God, that I that my sermon is good and that the technology works and that the drapes don't fall down. There are some days where that's my highest expectation, I'm embarrassed to say. But the spirit has been working on me and saying, your your expectations are just too low, son. It's It's like this over the last couple of weeks, he's been coming next to me and saying, your expectations, they're just too low, son that I'm with you in the midst of you as you gather together, as you gather around the table and the blood and the wine, the, the, the bread and the juice, and remember all of the ways that I'm proclaiming to you my goodness and my love for you. Your expectations are too low that there is new life that's being extended. Every day, including on Sundays when we gather together, like leave the other things to me and just trust that the spirit is at work in people. And so I just want to say that as we gather together, I want to be one and be one with you that has a high expectation for how the spirit may move. And I don't know how he's going to move. I don't I don't know which way he, he's going to stir us or which uh, uh, image he might give us. But but I'm just praying and hoping and trusting that as we continue to journey together as a church and as people of faith, that we will have a sense of God is, is, is stirring something in us. And, and I want to enter into this space to say, God, what, what would you do? What would you want to say? What do you what, and what what might you want me to say to someone else in this space? And so that's just I, just an opening profession and confession of myself to say this is this is where I've been. That there are days where my expectations have been too low, but I don't I don't want that anymore. That I don't want a sense of how God is moving in us, how He's moving in you. So I just let me just pray again as as we turn into our text. Spirit, you, you are welcome here. You, you've been here before we arrived. You will be here after we leave. There's no space, there's no place that, um, that you do not occupy. And so, God, as we come into this place as a, as a, as a family of faith, God, we know that you're here. And we trust that you are at work, that you've uh, been stirring something, even as we walked here or drove here or uh, took the bus here, however it is that we uh, uh, arrived here, Lord, that you have been stirring something in us already. Affirmations of who we are in you and who we are to you. Areas of conviction of things that you say that you want to say to us of step in these ways, children, ways that we need to experience your delight over us. Spirit, I don't know how you've been at work, but I know that you have. And we're expecting, we're expectant that you will move again and to continue to move in this, in this space, in this time, as we're gathered together. You're not limited to this space, but there's something that's, that is unique when the community of faith gathers together. So, God, I pray that you would stir in us. In Christ's name, amen. For the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been um, in a sermon series called Everyday Battles where our aim has just simply been to say, what does it mean for us to uh, push through and push into just the everyday struggles of of life? Lisa started off the series uh, a couple of weeks ago by talking about disappointment. She talked about uh, just what do we make of uh, the sense of of disappointment that we experience, whether it be uh, disappointing situations or disappointing circumstances or disappointing relationships or even being disappointed with God. God or with the church? What, what meaning do we make of our disappointments and then how do we find a way through it, whether it be a season of disappointment or an experience of disappointment? Justin Henry, our, our pastoral fellow, he preached a, just a really moving and vulnerable sermon about doubt last week. He reminded us that doubt and faith, that they actually can grow in the same field, that one's not mutually exclusive of the others. And while there are times where we would doubt ourselves or we would doubt others, uh, uh, that one of the things that anchors us is uh, God's love for us. That that grows even in the midst of doubt as well. And for both Justin and for Lisa, they pointed us towards the sufficiency of, of Jesus in the midst of these everyday battles. That Jesus and the, the, that the anchoring nature of Christ, the meet the challengedness of Christ uh, is the one that helps guide us through whatever the battles that we face, whether it be with doubt or with disappointment. Sometimes there are things which we battle, and there are other times that there are just seasons that we walk through, which is a form of uh, resistance and battle on its own. Today, I, I want us to, um, to discuss a, a very different battle than doubt or disappointment uh, in many ways. Um, and I, I would say that it's actually a battle that probably every single person in this room um, has to face. And it's our battle with money, with, with our financial lives. Now, um, I want to uh, acknowledge kind of right from the start that there can be, um, though not always, a, an uneasy history between the church when we talk about money. Um, I, I sort of jokingly referenced in our, in our pre-service meeting, I said, I'm going to be talking about money. I'm going to come to the church and say, I don't have a jet yet. What's wrong uh, with this situation? And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we're going to pass the plates a few times uh, at, the, at the end of this. And like, even when I say, like, there's this uneasy laughter, like, uh... <laughs> Really? We're going to do this? So I just want to acknowledge, like, there can be this uneasy history as it relates to the church and and, and money. I mean, even if we think through our own origin stories of Christianity uh, and how our faith got started, Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Like, that's just a bad sort of first step as it relates to Christianity and money. Initially, we're like, oh, see, it's terrible. What are we going to do with this thing? And and even as we come through um, the history of our faith, there's um, places, Places where the Protestant Reformation, where where Martin Luther, not just out of indulgences and money, but one of the centerpieces was this issue of how the church was relating to money and paying money to the church in order to deal with one's sins. And so Martin Luther said, no, there's a different way to go. And so there's just an ongoing unease or dis-ease with money. TV preachers. I grew up in Dallas, so I grew up during the time of Robert Tilton, and uh, I remember talking with my some of my family members that had sent money to Tilton because he was going to pray over them. And I'm like, I, I'll pray. <laughs> Send some to me. You know, like I just, so I, I grew up in this city that was really wrestling with how does the church actually relate to money and other millionaire preachers that amass wealth and uh, just multi-million dollar houses and jets and lavish lifestyles that seem just, contrary to the simple ways of Jesus. And, and sort of all of this taken together can leave a contemporary distaste in the mouths of people when they come to a church and want to deal with money. Uh, and as some of you are like, oh, Watson, so we're going to launch our building campaign? No, just kidding. Um, and the truth, and I will tell you this, the truth is over the course of, of, of our five years of gathering as a church, um, uh, both as the Eastside Parish and then when we relaunched as Christ City Church, we, ha- we, all, we actually haven't preached much on money. I went back and looked, and over the five years of, of gathering together, I was able to find two sermons that I had preached that were specifically targeted on money. And part of it was, um, part of our silence about money um, is, is because of this contemporary context that, uh, that we're in, of, of uh, sort of how the church is engaged in money and what we make of it. Uh, But the truth is, I think that some of our silence about money as a church, as our church, um, that that, that parts of it have probably been less helpful for you. Um, Because the right response to something that's broken isn't silence. It's a better response. Um, The the right response to bad theology isn't no theology, it's better theology. And, And we know this in other areas, too. The right response to bad international aid isn't no international aid, it's better international aid. The right response to hurt in a relationship isn't to neglect all relationships, but to focus on healthy relationships. And so as we approach today's topic of money, uh, it isn't for us to be silent about money, but to be faithful in our understanding of how God might want us to engage with our money. And what does it look like for us to surrender our financial lives to him? So uh, the first thing I think as we as we look at this um, and why we would even want to talk about this is because the Bible actually talks about money quite a bit. Uh, In the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, there's over 2,000 verses that actually talk about money. Uh, Jesus himself actually talks about money more than any other topic uh, that you might commonly associate with him. Jesus talks about money more than he talks about prayer, heaven, hell, or the kingdom of God even. Um, In 11 of Jesus' 39 parables in the New Testament, they're all about money. Many of Jesus' teachings are about money. Nearly a quarter, nearly a fourth of all of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels relate to money, stewardship, or the resources that God has given us. Just a a quick overview. Luke 16, Jesus tells us the parable of the unjust steward, which deals with money. Again in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus and dealing with money. Matthew 25, the longest explanation of what the end times will look like. He talks about issues dealing with money. Luke 7, the two debtors and how they relate to one another. Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man up in a tree. It's a story about money. Mark 10, the rich young ruler, which is in other gospels as well. And the reason why Jesus talks so much about money isn't because he cares a lot about money, but it's because we do. And he knows the, the ways that it can sort of sink its claws into, into our lives. And that's why when planning this series, we knew that money had to be one of the things that we addressed if we're really going to address everyday battles. The thing is, uh, because nearly every day of our lives, we're dealing with money. Y- you work all day in some job so that you can get some money. And then you take that money every day and you spend it. Maybe not every day. Some of you are probably, you know, but you know, most days you're like spending money on, on something. Like there's, there's no day that's not touched by money in some ways. And so with something that occupies so much of our attention, it's right for us as followers of Jesus to ask, what might our faith have to say to our engagement with money? What might it mean for us to surrender our financial lives over to Jesus? And that's my aim today, is for us to consider what it means for us to see God's kingdom come in our financial lives. To see the rule and reign of Christ in our financial lives. Just as our larger aim is to be transformed into the image of Christ, and just to have our lives shaped and conformed into Christ's image, so too is it for us to say, how might our financial lives be conformed into, into Christ's image? Or we might ask the Spirit to shape, just as we might ask the Spirit to shape our self-image or our identities or the various areas of our lives, it's right for us to also consider how might our financial lives be shaped by Jesus. And what I want to propose as we begin to approach this topic of money, I want to give you one question and two practices. The question that I want to pose to you is this, what story do you want your money to tell? What story do you want to tell? Um, Some of you uh, have actually gone through premarital counseling uh, with Lisa and I, and you know that we propose this question when um, typically, actually, if you do premarital counseling with us, one of the sessions we uh, tackle sex and money together. Um, and we actually asked the couple to bring a bottle of wine uh, because if you're going to meet with your pastors and talk about sex and money, that's not an awkward conversation, so maybe we can just sort of celebrate a little bit, but one of the things that we um, put together, welcome, yeah, you can sign up if that's something, uh, connection cards, I guess. Um, <laughs> can't wait. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we have that one, session three, just before the wedding day, um, but it's one of the questions. Over, over the course of your life, what story do you want your money to tell? Now listen, I know that there's some exceptions, um, even, in the, even in the room of, of what I'm about to say, but, but I want you to hang with me for a minute. The, the vast majority of us here, over the course of our lives, w- will actually earn a good amount of money. Some of us will earn, over the course of our working lives, some of us will earn tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, some of us uh, will earn hundreds of thousands. Some of you will earn millions over the course of your life. And whatever the amount, whether you're in the tens of thousands or whether you're in the millions, the question is the same. What story do you want your money to tell? Do you want your money to tell a story of frugality? Do you want your money to tell a story of safety or a story of provision or a story of foolishness or adventure? Or do you want it to tell a story of generosity? What, what story might you want your money to tell? And the thing about this question is this. If you don't have a story that you want your money to tell, your money will tell a story for you. Or just state it a different way. If you don't have a plan for your money, your money will have a plan for you. And that plan is not going to be a good one or a healthy one. As McLemore cautions, make the money. Don't let the money make you. <laughs> and there. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it, man. I'll take it. Um, uh, two uh, friends and kind of older saints that, uh, that I've learned from over the years, Tom and Christine sign in their book, uh, Living on Purpose, they write an exercise in this book. And they said, if you were to write a letter to yourself on your 70th birthday, explaining how you sought over the course of your life to express your faith and your use of your time and your money, what would you write? So thinking about at your 70th birthday, what story would you want your money and your life to to tell and sort of backing into that reverse engineering into that what do you need to do now to live uh, into that life that you dream of and that dream uh, will actually have financial implications and so what do you need to do with your finances now the question of what story do you want to tell it prompts the next of what do I need to do to live into that story that God is drawing me into when Lisa and I started dating, she had this phrase that she would use. It was sort of a, 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 kind of like a motivation to herself, although it served as a conviction for me. She would say, you will not become, you will never become what you are not now becoming. You'll never become what you're not now becoming. And So if, if I say that I want to um, become an amazing writer and I'm not writing, she would say it's never going to happen. And it was a, a, a prompt to say, so begin now. Maybe you can't begin in its fullest expression now, but begin with the first step now. Um, Stated differently, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author Annie Dillard, she would say it this way, how we spend our days is of course how we will spend our lives. And I think that as we approach an answer to this question of what story do we want our money to tell, I think Proverbs 30 uh, gives us a, a bit of guidance. The book of Proverbs was written by King Solomon. King Solomon um, was the son of King David, uh, King David of uh, David and Goliath fame. He kills Goliath. Later, he goes on to become king. I'm skipping over a lot. He has a son uh, named Solomon by a woman named Bathsheba. That's another story. You can read it later. And Solomon becomes king, and he writes the book of Proverbs and a few other books. And in Proverbs um, chapter 30, he comes to this uh, place where he's offering up a financial prayer. It says, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, which is, which is an interesting thing to ask for. But give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may, be, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of God. Solomon writes, give me neither poverty Though the scriptures, and and we've touched on this often at Christ City, the the scriptures display God's deep care for the poor, we mustn't uh, take this as uh, poverty in and of itself as a thing to be valued. Scripture doesn't consider poverty inherently virtuous. And though God cares deeply for the poor and is especially keen to ensure that those who uh, uh, who find themselves in poverty are cared for uh, and are invited into the community of faith and in equal standing with anyone else in the community, the scriptures go to great lengths to say that. That there is a preferential option for the poor. That because the poor are often vulnerable to the whims of the wealthy and depressed by those into power, yet in all of it, being poor in itself is not inherently virtuous. He says, give give me neither poverty nor riches. On the other end of it, Solomon says, he looks in the other direction. He says, don't don't give me riches. And this stands in opposition to the belief that possessions are always a sign of God's delight, his blessing, or his favor. This is the anti-prayer for the gospel of prosperity that says riches are a demonstration of God's favor and poverty is clearly a display of God's disgust. It's into that place that the scriptures say, no, that's not the case. The thing is, both of them, what Solomon is trying to get at as we approach wisdom literature is he's trying to get at the temptation towards falling prey to the forms of living that neglect the truth that God is the one who provides for us, that God is our ultimate provider. In both cases, whether money and material possessions have become the Lord of our lives, it might simply just look different. For the one with riches, they're tempted to say, look what I have done by my own hand. And thereby neglecting the reality that God is the one who who provides everything that uh, we need. For the one that is in poverty, the temptation is to simply look for another way to provide for themselves by one's own hand. Saying, if I'm going to eat, if I'm going to provide for myself, or my family, I can't look to God or God's ways. And it's in this way that the temptation for the rich and the poor as it relates to money is quite similar. That is to look to oneself rather than to God as the ultimate provider. The temptation is to turn one's back on God. The way the writer of Proverbs describes this as dishonoring and disowning. Otherwise, it may have too much and disown you. We may become, sti- uh, become poor and then dishonor the name of God. Solomon is describing the ways that our stories of money can be told that has ourselves at the center rather than God's work and God's ways. For those that are financially wealthy, there's the in creeping belief that once a certain status of security and financial well-being is secured, that there's no need for God because there's no perceived needs that God could meet. Solomon says that what can result from a misguided view of wealth is that we ourselves are the creators and the sustainers of our own lives, not God. And in that way, we disown God, Solomon would say, believing that we're the makers of our own ways. Dealing with poverty, it's not that the poor are more dispossessed to theft. And I think, if anything, the housing crisis of 2008 put that notion to rest. But when you're poor, and I can speak from some experience in this, when you're not sure how ends are going to be met, how the rent's going to get paid, or how the babies are going to get diapered, there can be an increeping belief that if it's going to happen, it ain't going to be because God intervenes. If I'm going to make it happen, it's because I'm going to have to do it on my own. If ends are going to be met, it will be because of me and my ingenuity and my own hustle. And if that means harming or hurting or violating, well, that's the way the game is played. What Solomon is pleading against is, is both of those beliefs, saying it brings dishonor upon God, the God who made you and who is the one who will provide. What Solomon is attempting to stir in us is a Godward vision, a God-honoring vision for our financial lives that would bring glory to God and good to others. What Solomon is hoping that we become captivated by is God and from that God honoring, God embracing uh, captivity that what will flow is a relationship with money that cares for others and in so caring brings honor to God. And that's the story of where Proverbs is bending us towards as it relates to our money. I told you I wanted to ask one question, that question of uh, what story do you want your money to tell? And then I want to deal with two practices. The two practices I want to touch on as we aim uh, to have our financial lives surrendered to Jesus is uh, discipline and generosity. Discipline and generosity. Um, I want to tackle discipline first. Now, for some of you, as soon as I mentioned discipline in the area of finances, I know that some of you may recoil. And there's some. Uh, my sense is that there's uh, that there's a few reasons for that. Um, Having logged some time caring for you and and, and praying with you and journeying with you uh, through this, my my general sense of why we might recoil when we discuss discipline and money is because of shame. Um, Shame can show up because there were times that uh, we were either foolish with our money, we made financial decisions that if found out by friends and family and peers that frankly we would be ashamed of it. Shame can show up also uh, uh, because there were times where um, we were incredibly vulnerable. Uh, vulnerability was, was actually forced on us, um, either by seasons of unemployment or underemployment or illness or economic oppression or injustice. And we ended up in a terrible financial position. And so talking about discipline with our finances, it raises pain for us. Because there was a time where maybe we wanted to be more disciplined, but circumstances were stark and survival was the discipline we had to engage in. So for whatever reason, either because of things that we did with our own hand or because of things that were forced upon us, because of circumstances and situations, when we talk about money, and we talk about discipline, just it stirs up shame. And what I want to remind you of is that Christ always gives honor for shame. He always gives honor for shame. That you are a daughter and a son of God. That, that you're honored, that you're loved, you're delighted over. Full stop. That whatever has been your story, that what I want you to know is that God loves you and that there is no shame within the family of God. With um, discipline, um, just three quick things under discipline. Um, that I want to touch on. And this is, this is a bit more practical than maybe oftentimes we, we can get with this. But under discipline, I want to talk about budget and debt and community. With budgeting, you um, got to have a plan. Budget is just another name for a plan. Uh, you have to have a way to know whether or not that the story that you want to tell with your money is actually being told with your money. Um, sometimes you can think, I, I want to tell this story with my money, and then you sort of look at where you're spending your money, and you're like, I'm not telling that story at all telling quite a very different story. The story that I'm telling is that I, I, I like Netflix and um, happy hours, but I really want to tell another story. Nothing wrong with Netflix and happy hours, but you know, maybe there's some other things that you wanted to add to the chapters of the story. And so you need to know whether or not there's another story that's hijacking you. And so budgeting, tracking your expenses, uh, knowing your income, identifying where there's gaps. And if you don't have a budget and you don't have a plan, then you may end up in a faraway land called financial crazy town. I've been there. It's terrible. Stay away. <laughs> Stay away. Um, if you've never set out to budget, uh, honestly, a sermon isn't the best place for me to try and help you uh, with that. And I'm not even sure I'm the one to help you with that. There's a t- ton of other brilliant people. But let me just say this. One of the rules of thumb that Lisa and I often share with folks is the 10-10-80 rule. And this is a starting point. It's not a financial destination, friends. Um, And the basic budget frame says that you save 10% of your income, you give 10% of your income away, and then you live off the 80%. Now, I know that there are some of you in the room that have master's degrees and PhDs in economics and finance, and you're like, saving 10%, that's reckless. You should save 15% in retirement, and then you should have three months salary savings in the event that you lose your job. I get it. Cool your jets, man. Like, we're just sort of first things first. We got to start somewhere, and it's a starting point, depending on your situation so be gracious with yourself and remember the story that you want to tell remember the story that you want to tell just real practically one of the tools that Lisa and I use to help track our expenses and develop our budget is an online tool called Mint I'm going to mention a few tools they'll all be listed um, in the notes of the podcast that'll be posted later this afternoon so have a budget debt That's a tough topic particularly for those with with school loans or school debt, and I understand, I went to grad school twice, I understand. (laughs) (sighs) But when the Bible talks about debt, the consistent metaphor it uses is slavery. When you're in debt to someone or to a financial institution, particularly debt that's incurred on things that depreciate in value, your debtedness is a form of slavery. And as a follower of Jesus, we are told to only owe a debt of love to others. And so with debt, our discipline is to stay out of it if we don't have it, out of consumer debt. And for those of us that have it, to get out of it as quickly as we can. To pay off the loans with the higher interest rates first and then pay off the smaller loans next to gain uh, momentum um, through the debt elimination process and keep your financial story in mind. What story do you want to tell? And friends, I want to say that you can do it. It's not too tall a task. One tool that um, I'd recommend to you is Financial Peace University. Um, There's a curriculum that many of our church have actually gone through um, to gain control of their own finances. It's best to go through it with others, but you can also go through it online. They have a bunch of really helpful tools and resources on their website. Their blog is really helpful and really encouraging. Um, And then the the last piece that I want to share under uh, what it means to be disciplined is that of community. Do not go through this alone. And I know that's a weird thing to say because we're talking about money and money is one of the sort of the last bastions of uh, things that we do keep private. We will talk about so many other aspects of our lives very publicly, but the money is the one that we keep private. Um, But I want to say to you that you don't have to go through the budgeting process or the debt elimination process or even the process of understanding the story that God wants to tell through your money. You don't have to go through that alone. Invite others into your journey. Having a community around you will help you uh, shed the shame that you may feel about it because you realize, oh, I'm I'm not the only one. You're not. All of us are more broken than we want to show on Sunday. Community can serve as an encouragement when the budget feels hard or tight and community can help hold you accountable to the steps that you sense God leading you to take. Now And look, let me say, I am not standing up here as a, as a paragon of financial stability in front of you guys. I've shared with you my, in different places my own story as it relates to finances and how I just made a wreck of my financial life in my 20s. And what happens to me there was that there was a community that came around me and helped guide me forward. Once it was exposed about where I was, they came around me and said, The Lord is your light. Here's your way forward. We'll walk with you through establishing these things. And so it was the elders of the Berkeley Mosaic, our church in Berkeley, California, that helped me shed my shame and helped me put structures around me so that I could flourish financially and tell a better story. A story that had the Lord's work in my life as the centerpiece rather than a story of my own comfort as the storyline. Last practice that I want to share is that of generosity. Money is one of our everyday battles, and one of the best ways to approach money's hold on us is to frankly be generous. And there's no tax bracket where generosity begins or ends, friends. One of the chief ways to consistently loosen money's grip on your life is to give it away. If there's something that I treasure and that I guard, then to see the the loosening grip of it is to say, no, let let me live generously with this thing. To put a finer point on it, one of the marks of uh, of a mature, growing disciple is generosity. Um, And under generosity, there's two things I just want to touch on here real quickly is growing in a ceiling. First, growing. I want to challenge all of us to grow in our financial generosity, just as I might call you to grow in your prayer life or in your service to the city or in your pursuits of justice or holiness. Likewise, I want to call you to grow in financial generosity. In her book, Soul of Money, author and philanthropist, Lynn Twist, she says this, For me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. And the next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs automatically before we even think to question it or examine it. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we are already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get done or didn't do. And this internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity lives at the very heart of our jealousies, of our greed, of our prejudice, and of our arguments with life and the antidote friends to a storyline of scarcity is generosity a life and a financial life poured out for the glory of god and the good of others and what i want to say is um, wherever you are with generosity to just start i want to encourage you to just start to just begin where you are which is what i would say in any other area of your life i don't i don't pray very much Tomorrow's a new day. You can start tomorrow. I don't serve in one area or another. That's okay. You have a neighbor, knock on the door, say, hey, just start where you are. Give. Give to the church. I will say it. We have more vision than we have money, which is a beautiful thing. Even though we're in a great space financially as a church. But what it means is that there is ministry that God still wants us to do, that he wants to do in us and through us, but we don't have the money for it, but we're praying by God's work that that it would happen. Give to organizations and ministries that are faithfully caring for this city and this world. Give to Little Lights. Give to Paz Esperanza. Give to World Vision, World Relief, CCDA, any of the other organizations that are engaged. Give your values. Know what your values are and let your money follow those values. For Lisa and I, one of the things that, of the many that we value, one of the things that we value is to see the global advancement of the good news of Jesus around the world. But we also value issues of justice. And so when we give to missions organizations, we strategically give to missions organizations that are led by people of color or women. Because it sits within our values. But we want to grow in our generosity. The other story that Lisa and I want our money to tell is one of generosity, And so when we were married, we said we want to try and see our giving increase by a half percent every year. We haven't been successful all 17 years. But it continues to be a value for us. And so that we want there to be a story that when we look back over our money, that we're able to say, glory to God, good of others is told there. Because you start where you are. But then grow. Some of you already give. Some of you are just, you're incredibly generous. And one of the things that we want to say is to continue to increase. No one would say, um, I looked back at 2017 and I thought prayer life is pretty good. I think I'll probably just keep it right there where it was in 2017. I'm good. But sometimes we do that in the areas of financial generosity. I think I was good. Let me see if I can repeat that again. And the question is, what, is that the story? And it may be. I'm, I'm not judging, but I just want to propose the question to you to say, what story in this year might God say to you? And then others of you, you, you give tremendously. And that you know it. That, um, but the question remains, what might God be calling you to? And is there a deeper form of giving that God is saying, come this way? Is, is there a stretch that God is asking of you? And don't, what I want to say to you is don't be afraid to tell that story. Be courageous. Let God point you to himself and his generosity, even as he's leading you to go deeper. So grow. The other thing that I want to say as it relates to generosity is a ceiling. And I I don't know if I'm talking to anyone in the room when I talk about a ceiling, but I'm going to mention it. Some of you may end up making more money than you could ever imagine. It's just the truth of it. And what I want to propose to you, what I want to have you consider is something called a lifestyle ceiling that you would set now. Don't set it later. (laughs) Like, you know, after the bonus. Like, set it now. (laughs) To say, I, I think that what we want our story to be is that we will live under a certain level. And if our money ever goes beyond that. We won't increase our lifestyle. We will stay where we are. And then whatever is increased over that lifestyle that we will use for the work of God's kingdom, the expansion of God's kingdom in this time and place. So set a lifestyle limit and live up to and under that limit so that you might use your money in a way that more faithfully reflects your faith. So grow in your generosity. And for some of you, consider a lifestyle ceiling. The, the aim of today really was to put forward one question and two practices. That question of what story do you want to tell, and then two practices of discipline and generosity to help you shape and frame and move forward with that story. To help you begin to tell that story. And through it to see God's glory and honor illumined throughout the world. The last verse that I want to leave you with um, comes out of Hebrews 13, and it's one that's just really been a tremendous encouragement to me this week. I don't know what uh, of anything that I've said that that has struck you. But I want this verse to wash over you as you consider whatever next steps that God may be leading you to take. And as you pray through how God wants you to respond. And this is Hebrews 13. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, and listen to this, never will I leave you never will I forsake you. Maybe it was just even the sense of what story do you want to tell with your money that stirred up excitement and fear and what I want you to hear is God saying to you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. For some of you, maybe you sense God saying, I I need for you to take another step towards discipline. I need for you to begin talking with folks about setting a budget, about making sure that the story that you want to tell is actually being told. And that prompt stir some things up for you. Maybe shame or fear or apprehension. What I want you to hear is God saying to you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You can take this next step, child. Maybe for some of you it was generosity that you have been living decidedly less generously than you sense God wanting you to live. And maybe you're just fearful or full of uncertainty about what that means. But you sense growing in generosity is the step for you. What I want to say, what I want to to meet your hesitation with is the words that Jesus would say to you. Never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. I'm with you, child. And so whatever the spirit is stirring, know that you can step forward with Christ every step of the way. And as we look at the everyday battle of engaging our money, that Jesus is standing at the ready saying, I'm with you. I'm never leaving you and I'm never forsaking you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, that's a, the that's a, that's a word for us, that you are with us, that you're with us at every step, that you're with us at, in, in, in every adventure, you're with us in every stretch, you're, you're, you're with us in every situation, you're gracious with us, you're merciful with us. So God, I pray that um, in whatever areas it is that you're prompting us to, to surrender, Lord, we've talked about financial lives today, but Lord, maybe by the curiosity of your spirit, it was another area. Maybe it was the area of our relational lives. Maybe it was the area of our vocational lives, of our self-image or whatever it is, but that word that, of reminding that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you're with us in the midst of all of our surrendered lives, that you're with us. Spirit, I pray that you would continue to, to nurture that and stir that in us as we look to you fully and faithfully. Spirit, I pray that your, that your presence would wash over us. God, that you, that you would form us into a courageous people. That you would form us into a generous people, a disciplined people. but more than anything that we would be a people marked by the presence of God with us. Holy Spirit, move in us. Direct us and guide us. By your gentleness and your strength. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen.